0: Good morning. Good morning. We, most of us, uh, have this thing that we do sometimes, which is we uh, attempt to dictate to the ruler of the universe the plan for our life. And so I there are a couple of times where I remember very clearly doing this. The first was while I was in college, and I was in my last semester of school, And I had started to apply for some ministry jobs, and uh, I told the Lord, and I felt like He agreed, that uh, I would get a job anywhere uh, not named Kansas City. And so I started to send out some resumes and applications and whatnot and look at some ministry positions in what I thought were some really wonderful cities that the Lord could get on board with, Uh, Nashville and, and Dallas and Denver and Chicago. Uh, and I even had a couple interviews on the phone, and none of those panned out. And so I ended up having to do the thing that a lot of uh, young people have to do when they finish college now, which is move back in with their parents. And so that was in Kansas City, but I was pretty certain it was just like a holdover, you know, like an extended stay at a hotel or something for free. And so I, uh, I continued to look for jobs and, and to apply for things. And I got a phone call one day. And the phone call was from a person named Dave Shermer. And he was uh, an associate pastor at a church called Gasham Presbyterian. He said, hi, Tim, you don't, you don't know who I am. But uh, I bumped into uh, a man who goes to Liberty Christian Fellowship. His name is Jim Wiley. And he gave me your name. He said, you're looking for a ministry position. Well, we're looking for a youth pastor. Uh, and so we set up to have lunch. And I... No, I'm not kidding. I went into this thinking to myself, this would be good practice for when I actually get a job offer from the place where the, I told the Lord I would be willing to go. And so uh, I went and we had lunch and it went really, really well. And I can remember driving home uh, from Buffalo Wild Wings where we had lunch thinking to myself, man, it's gonna be really weird when I turn that down because this isn't where I'm getting a job. Like I told God and he didn't vocally say anything otherwise, so I assumed we were on the same page that this was not going to happen in Kansas City. Well, I took that job um, here in Kansas City right over off of North Oak Trafficway, and it was great. Um, That was the first time in my life where I feel like the Lord probably had an audible chuckle over what I thought was going to happen in my life. The second uh, hits a little bit closer to home for us here. I spent nine years or so in youth ministry and I also spent nine years or so telling anyone who would listen to me that at no point in my life did I want to be like the pastor of a church. (laughs) I should have given that longer, maybe. Uh, I thought the Lord and I were on the same page there. And then uh, here I am, I'm working at LCF and these talks begin about Kim's retirement and transitioning behind him. And Melody and I one day, we had a conversation uh, at, at our house, and I said, Do you ever, do you ever picture us being in a position where we would be like leading a church? And Melody thought, our Melody said, Yeah, I've thought that before, but you've always said no, so I didn't really think it was open for conversation. And I and the I remember thinking to myself in that moment, I didn't say it out loud because it would have been embarrassing, but I remember thinking in that moment, uh, yeah, I feel like you and God are on the same page, but I've been telling God something different, and He is not agreeing with me, I don't think. And so here I am now, uh, and that, I think is the second time where I, probably every Sunday morning, the Lord, as I walk up those little stairs over there, the Lord kind of audibly chuckles about what I thought was going to be the plan for my life. We... We sometimes do this, where we tell God, God, here's my little kingdom, and this is what I'm going to do with it. You know, Simba, everything the light touches, <laughs> you know, is my kingdom, and here's how I'm going to rule it, and here's what I'm going to do. And and God may have entirely different plans. And what we're going to see this morning, and I'll I'll just ruin the end of that movie for the future of your entire life, his is always going to win. Every single time, no matter how hard you grasp, no matter how hard you you just clutch on to what you think is your kingdom and what you want to do with it, you're never going to win the battle against here's what I want and here's what God wants. And we're going to continue in looking at the Christmas narrative and the people that surround it this morning. And we're going to see that. We're going to see it through King Herod. And King Herod is someone we don't talk about very much uh, at Christmas. We, We focus in on a lot of the other characters, Mary and Joseph, the shepherds, the wise men, Jesus. We don't talk about King Herod very much, and it's because it forces us to reckon with something that's pretty difficult. First, it forces us to really take a hard look at something that's unthinkable that he would have children under two years old killed. Second, it forces us to ask ourselves the following question. What do I do when the Lord's plan threatens my kingdom? And that's an uncomfortable question to have to wrestle with. And so that's what we're going to see this morning. If you've got a Bible and you want to open up to Matthew chapter 2, that's where we're going to be. Uh, while you do that, I want to just kind of recap where we were last week. If you were with us, uh, we talked about sh- the shepherds and the angels. That was the first piece of the Christmas story that we looked at. And we kind of set the larger stage for what we're doing this Christmas by saying that the story of Christmas is the story of the links that God was willing to go in His pursuit of humanity. That the Son eternally preexistent in heaven, would willingly step into a world of sin and brokenness, and he would take on a human body that was subject to pain and decay and all of the effects of the broken world around us. And he would do that willingly so that by his life and death and resurrection, anyone who puts their faith in him might be brought back into a right relationship with God that God is willing to go to those links to restore relationship with humanity. And last week, we looked at the account of shepherds and the angels in a field near Bethlehem. And we talked about what was it that the angel said to the shepherds? Well, behold, fear not, I bring you good news that will be great joy for all people. That God's divine pursuit is for all. Those shepherds were some of the last people who should have received a message from angels about the Messiah's birth, and yet they received it first. We have not done anything to deserve Jesus and His work on our behalf, and yet He willingly came and did that for us. It's an incredible picture of God's love and grace and mercy. It's John 3, 16, 17, brought to life. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever would believe in Him should not perish but have eternal life. God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world. It's for everyone. It's available to all. And we, we said, if, if you're someone who's here, and maybe you've got intellectual or emotional or experiential holdups with Christianity, that the encouragement this holiday season is to investigate who Jesus is. Take a hard look at the person of Jesus Christ. Is He who He said He was? Is His life what the Bible tells us it is? Did He resurrect? And deal with that. And then go and take a look at some of the reservations or questions or holdups that you might have. And if you're someone who's here and you have placed your faith in Jesus, then are you sharing the message for all? That all might come to know Him. And so today we're going to pivot. We're going to take a look at a different part of the story, and it's an an extended portion of Matthew chapter 2. We're going to be in this chapter for two weeks. Next week, TA is going to talk about the wise men, or the Magi. And uh, Herod and the Magi are kind of intertwined in this story, in Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 to 21. So I'm going to read an extended portion of that, uh, and then we'll take a look at what it has to say to us. So, Matthew 2, beginning in verse 1. Now Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king. Behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where Christ was to be born. The wise men go and they see Jesus and they've traveled this long distance and then they make the short trip from Jerusalem to Bethlehem and there's baby Jesus laying in the manger and they present their gifts to him and then they go about their business a different direction because they've been warned not to go back to Herod. That's typically where uh, we would stop reading this story around Christmas time, But there's something that happens after that. Look at verse 13. When he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, he became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were 2 years old and under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, "A voice was heard in Rama, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children; she refused to be comforted because they were no more." But when Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. What happens when we think our kingdom is threatened? What do we do? How do we respond? How do we react? This portion of the Christmas story is a little bit different in that typically, leading into Christmas, we focus on Jesus. And rightfully so. We're anticipating his birth. We want to celebrate his birth. But there's this portion of the story that actually forces us to look at ourselves and ask the question, Is there a little bit of Herod in me? Now maybe you wouldn't, hopefully you wouldn't, go so far as to have a number of children under the age of two killed in order to protect your kingdom, but what would you be willing to do? You see, in order to really understand the story, we need to know a little bit about Herod. Herod was evil on a level that uh, is almost hard to comprehend. He was the king of Judea, Judah. What that means is that he was actually what was called a client king. He fell under Roman rule, so Caesar gave Herod an area, Judah, and he said, you're going to reign over Judah. But ultimately, he's given that for the advancement of something greater, for Rome. He's not actually the king. He would be more what we would equate to like a governor. There's president of the United States, and then there's a governor in the state of Missouri. You, ex- you exist in that role to facilitate something larger. That's what Herod's role was in Judah. And his defense of that throne was obsessive particularly in the later years of his reign. There's a Jewish-Roman historian named Josephus, and he writes a pretty complete account of Herod's reign that includes a number of incredibly violent acts that Herod undertakes in the last five years of his time as the king of Judah. Here are a few of them. Late in his reign, he had the two previous kings killed along with all of their followers. He then killed everyone who was in any way associated with their families. He then went through his own family and had anyone who had any ties to those two previous kings eliminated as well, which included one of his wives. At one point, there was a plot among three of his... He thought there was a plot among three of his sons to try to take his throne, so he had them killed. He used espionage and an almost mafia-like system of enforcers to suppress or eliminate any political opponents. At one point, there was an attempt to assassinate him, and he rounded up the ten conspirators and any of their living relatives and had them publicly executed. Herod's acts of violence didn't really have any boundaries, but they all centered on one thing, and it was protecting his kingdom. You see, Herod got nervous when his kingdom felt threatened. And so he would act in order to protect his kingdom. It's for that reason that he decides to kill all of these children. There's a a baby born in a town within his jurisdiction, and someone is saying that that baby is king of the Jews. Herod says to himself, Hold on, I'm king of Judah, where the Jews live, I'm king of the Jews. And so if you're saying that there's a child who's been born the king of the Jews, all I need to do is eliminate that child and the threat is gone. The threat to my reign and rule is gone. And so he sends a a squadron of people, a, a group of individuals, into the region of Bethlehem after talking to the wise men about how long ago was it when you saw the star and headed this direction he says, to be safe, we'll just kill all the baby boys under two years old. And we hear that. And at least for me, I know that mental image that I would get of this part of the story is that thousands of children were slain. And that's unthinkable and awful and horrible. And I don't really know what to do with that inside my own heart. In reality, it was it was probably 20 or 30 children. Bethlehem, it was like a rural area in the region surrounding there. And so the number of families that would have had a child under two was probably 20 or 30. And that actually makes it harder for me. Because I can actually picture 20 or 30 children under two years old. On any given Sunday morning over the course of three services, I watch 20 or 30 little boys less than two years old head back to class over there or sit in their parents' lap. And so I can picture that. That an individual would say, my kingdom feels threatened, therefore I'm eliminating 20 real children, 30 real children under the age of two years old. I'm bringing unthinkable grief and suffering and sadness into the Home of 20 or 30 families into the community that surrounds these young children. That's what he was willing to do in order to protect his kingdom. They're broken and hurt. 20, 30 families crushed by the actions of a desperate individual. And what's interesting when you read the story is that God is in no way caught off guard by Herod's action, You see, God's not concerned with the protection or the preservation of Herod's kingdom. That's not God's priority. The Savior has just been born into the world. And God is going to preserve his life. If you open back up or look back down at your Bible. In verses 13 to 15, God gives Joseph the warning that this is about to happen. Joseph takes Jesus and Mary and they flee to Egypt. In verses 16 to 18, Herod has the idea. Before Herod has done anything, commanded anything, given an order for anything, Jesus and his family are on the run. God's committed to the advancement of His kingdom. Sometimes when the Lord wants to do something in our life, the Lord wants to do something in the world, it bumps into someone else's idea of what should be happening in their world. And there is a collision there. Sometimes that leads a person to do something evil, to do something sinful. You see, humanity feels threatened or gets nervous when our kingdoms feel threatened. I think if we're all honest with ourselves, we can admit to being tempted to willfully sin, to do something against the will of the Lord when something about our future or our kingdom feels like it's been threatened. The question is, how far would you be willing to go? I don't think anyone in here would be willing to kill innocent children. But where would you draw the line? Would you be willing to lie to protect your kingdom? Would you compromise your integrity? Would you be willing to steal? Maybe take some money off the top of a company? I think more so maybe than any of us are comfortable actually admitting, there's a lot of Herod inside of us. When my kingdom feels threatened, when the will of the Lord wants something different than what I planned. I'm willing to try to dig my heels into the ground and stand against Him. But God is not concerned about the protection of your kingdom. He's committed to the advancement of His. And at times, the most loving thing God can do in your life is to totally destroy your kingdom. Because the tighter you hold on to yours the less able you are to take hold of his. So sometimes he's got to just crush that thing from out from under you. You see, one of the things that we learn from this story is that God's divine pursuit cannot be stopped. Herod tries... There's nothing he could do. A plan to kill all the male children under the age of two is not something that would thwart God's plan to save humanity. It is an unspeakable evil, and it forces us to ask some really difficult questions. Like if God could warn Jesus' family to take him and flee, couldn't he have warned all the families to take all of their children under two and flee? And that's a difficult question to have to reckon with. There's no really easy answer there, but the thing that we do see in the midst of it is that God preserves the life of the Savior of the world. He acts in order to ensure that humanity will have its redemption through Jesus' life and death and resurrection. It's like Herod's playing chess with someone who knows every move he's going to make before he makes it. I have an app on my phone. It's for the game Hearts, the card game. Hearts requires four people to play, and so you can play this game of hearts with three uh, players that are run by the computer. This game is maddening. It's almost impossible to win because the computer knows every card I have in my hand, and it's almost as if it knows every card I'm going to play before I play it, and it's so frustrating. When you try to catch up a plan to stand against the lord's will it's like playing with someone who's holding all the cards to beat you you can't win that game his will is always going to prevail we see that in the story of christmas god's pursuit of humanity couldn't be stopped And we should be able to praise God that that's the case. We should read this story, have our hearts broken by the reality of what happened to 20 or 30 children here, and yet praise the Lord that he preserved the life of Jesus. That also means that at times in your life, in my life, when I've got a plan, and the Lord does something contrary to that plan to advance his will, I should be able to praise the Lord there. I should be able to say, thank you, God, for doing something greater than I had in mind. The advancement of God's kingdom cannot be stopped. He's going to do that in and through your life. You can try to resist it, but ultimately you're fighting against God. And that's a a battle you're not ever going to win. There are examples uh, of this truth just kind of littered throughout the New Testament. One of them comes from the apostles. They've recently started to proclaim the gospel, and they get arrested in Jerusalem, and they're thrown into jail. And in the middle of the night, an angel springs them from their jail cell. And what do they do? Well, they go right into the temple court, and they start proclaiming the good news of the gospel to anyone who will listen. And the high priest sees that they've escaped from prison. They go and they round them up and they bring them in front of this council of really powerful religious and political and and social people. And they make them give uh, an account of what's going on. And after a little bit of a trial, the high priest stands up and he says, I think we should kill them. And in Acts 5, 38 to 39, this is what one person in that crowd stands up and says. He says, in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will surely fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. There's one person in that crowd who understands it's not to our benefit to try to resist what it is that the Lord is doing here. We see it in the life of Jesus. Late in his life, just before he's crucified, he knows what's about to come and he's goes out into a garden to spend some time praying. And he prays, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. There's there's no problem with telling the Lord what you would like. Unfortunately, at least in my own life, when I reflect backwards, most often I would stop my prayer there. But Jesus tags on the important part at the end. Nevertheless, not my will be done, but yours. We've got to be willing to submit ourselves to the advancement of God's kingdom in and through our lives rather than committing ourselves to the advancement of our own kingdom. (coughs) We've got to be willing to say, you know what, when my kingdom feels threatened, I can trust that God has something greater for me. I can trust that he's doing something greater through this than I could ever dream up or ever come up with or could ever try to implement on my own. And therefore, not my will be done, but yours, Lord. And so, what should our response be? I just want to offer uh, four things this morning. We need to see god 's kingdom for what it is, and that's that it's infinitely greater than your own. We won't stop fighting for the protection of our own little kingdoms until we see that His is infinitely better you won't give up the fight to protect what you think is yours until you see that what is his is so much greater until you let go of your own thing you can't take hold of what he would want to have for your life it's all about submission to submit yourself to the will of the lord his plan for your family or your career or your lifestyle or your time his plan for your life from the day of your birth to the day of your death is so much greater than anything you could possibly try to do for yourself. We need to see that for what it is and then submit ourselves willingly to it. We need to see that God's, or see God's power for what it is, and that's completely unstoppable. It's like that one man in Acts 5. You could choose to oppose God, And fight against Him. But you're never going to win that. His power to advance His will. His power in our universe is completely unstoppable. There's nothing you could ever do to slow it down. There's nothing you could do to derail Him. He will advance His kingdom. He will pursue the cause of salvation among humanity. Without anything standing in His way. In fact, Jesus tells us that. The gates of hell will not stand against the Lord advancing His kingdom. Advancing the church. The third is, see your resistance for what it is, and that's totally futile. Fighting for your kingdom against God's can only lead to one place, and that is to frustration. I think about the Washington Generals. If you you don't know who the Washington Generals are, they're the team that has to trot out and play against the Harlem Globetrotters every night. They've played hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of games. They've won one time, and that entire group of Washington Generals was released, and they brought in another group. The Washington Generals are supposed to lose. I can't imagine what it's like to trot out there every night and know, not only can we not win this game, we're also going to be the laughingstock of the game most of the time. But that's what it's like to enter into a battle with the Lord over whose will is going to, to take priority. That's a losing fight. And if you can just go ahead and tell yourself that at the outset, it'll be easier to submit. I can't win if I want something different from what the Lord wants for my life. That's only going to land me in a place of frustration. Just submit. Submit. And then last, see your life for what it is. And that's an opportunity to give glory to the king however many years you've been given here, they're an opportunity to give glory to the Lord. I want to make one final point about Herod. Herod missed the incredible truth we talked about last week, the one that the angels spoke about in the field to the shepherd. You see, Herod missed that the birth of Jesus was good news for all, and that included him. The birth of a, a baby in a manger in Bethlehem was good news for Herod. It was good news for Herod's own little kingdom and world. And so because he missed that, he, because he refused to accept it, he couldn't let go of his own thing, and so he, just, he had to protect it at all costs. And it ended up being incredibly evil and, and ending the lives of 20 to 30 children. He just couldn't see that the greatness of the coming kingdom was far better than anything he could build on his own. And so when Herod dies and his reign over his kingdom comes to an end, the will of the Lord in his pursuit of humanity just marches forward. Jesus and his family come back to Israel. Jesus grows up in Nazareth, lives a perfectly sinless life all throughout the region, displaying the power of the Lord. He goes to the cross receives the punishment of all of sin, of all of humanity upon himself, though he did not deserve it. And he dies and he lays in a tomb and he resurrects and he sins into heaven. Now anybody who places their faith in him can spend eternity with the Lord in heaven. Herod could not stop that. But he also chose not to submit to it. He chose not to see that that was good news for all and that included himself. God's divine pursuit Cannot be stopped. Your life is an opportunity to give glory to the King by submitting to His will. We're going to sing one final song here this morning. It's one that we sing around uh, the holiday season every year. It's called, All Glory Be to Christ. The chorus of the song says, All glory be to Christ, our King. All glory be to Christ. His rule and reign we'll ever sing. All glory be to Christ. It's one thing to just sing those words because they're what's up on the screen and they're what we're supposed to sing. It's another thing to actually declare those as a cry of your heart that you would live your life in such a way that all glory would be to Christ and his kingdom and his work in the world and his pursuit of humanity, not to your own pursuit of whatever it is you think that you've got going on, not to your own protection of your own kingdom. But to say, all glory be to Christ the King. All glory be to Christ. Let's stand up and sing that together.